0: You want to get out your sermon outline and the bulletin. Have that out so you can follow along. We are in Mark chapter two today. This is the fourth week in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, one a quick announcement: forgot to to make earlier the. Session's been going through this sort of planning stage. We're still in the middle of it, but we made a few decisions that the elders asked me to share with you. And one is you got an email uh, this week, uh, probably yes, Friday or or yesterday. I don't actually remember. Kind of all blurs together. Um, That the elders pray every month, and that's coming up on Tuesday night. And uh, so we'll be praying. But if you read the email and now you're going to have to go back and read it, Um, there's something new in it. And so each month we're going to give you a general area asking you to join us in prayer. So we usually uh, meet Tuesday nights about 9 o'clock. We sort of hit our time to pray. And uh, so ask on Tuesday night at 9 o'clock that you would join us. And you don't have to pray for a long time, but uh, this month we're going to be praying for our missionaries. So we'll pray for all of you and lots of other stuff. But we're going to give you sort of one group to pray for. And this month it'll be uh, our missionaries. And so they're listed there in the email. And just encourage you, if you have a time, and if it gets away from you, just pretty much any time on Tuesday would be great. But we thought it would be really good if we all sort of prayed together. Additionally, four times a year, this is something new, we're going to invite you to join us at the office. And so the next one will be in November. And so we'll have our regular prayer meeting in November. I think it's the 19th. I'm not totally sure on the date. Um, but you'll get an email beforehand. And if you're available, you can come to the office and join us for that prayer time. And so we're going to have this sort of quarterly prayer meeting to just come and pray. We always talk about. We want to be a church that prays. We want people to pray. We're going to try to make it a little bit easier. So four times a year, first one's in November. You can come and join us on a Tuesday night and uh, pray with us. And so that would be great. So encourage you to consider that. And as we get closer to that date, we'll let you know and remind you of all that. But those are a couple sort of quick changes that we've made, and there'll be more coming. Um, so speaking of prayer, uh, let's go ahead and pray and get ready, uh, to hear about more of the gospel of Mark. So pray with me, heavenly father, this is your word and we need it. We always need it. We think we know what we need, but we doubt your ability to give it to us. And we think we know the state of our own spiritual lives, but we're not willing to admit it's worse than it looks. We need to know how to come to you empty-handed. We need to know how to trust you, and we can't trust others, and we don't trust ourselves. We need to know what it is in our lives that really needs healing, and we need to trust you to heal it. Lord, forgive us. Teach us to follow Christ and to hear your word. Thank you that today we're learning once again from John Mark, a follower of Jesus, as he brings us the earliest eyewitness account of the life of Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Once again, we come to another story of Jesus healing somebody. And once again, it's an easy story to read over and move on, Because most of us have read it before, lots of times. Having already preached through both Matthew and Luke, we've already covered this story twice, and it's a great story. But once again, it's just another story. However, it's been some time since we heard it, so let's listen to it again carefully, because there's more here than meets the eye. Turn with me to Mark 2, verse 12, verses, and hear God's word. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To understand the stories of Mark, I spoke with a high school class this morning, you have to put yourself in the story. You have to use your imagination. And that's certainly true for today's text as well. I want you to think about this with me. Imagine with me what it's like to be there. See, as a paralytic, he stares at a bleak future in the face. You see, there were no neurosurgeons back then, no specialists, no rehabilitation hospitals, no physical therapist, no medical breakthroughs on the horizon, no miracle drugs in the cabinet. Sympathy is the only prescription the community can dispense. And he's had enough of that. He doesn't want sympathy. He wants his life back. The life he has now is a horizontal one full of bed sores and blank stares at the ceiling, it is his only priest that ceiling, But it neither acknowledges his confessions nor hears his prayers. His spindly legs and arms form the bars to the cell that imprison him, isolating him from the rest of the world. And so he lays there alone on a three-by-six mat, day after day, week after week, month after month. When he runs... It's in his dreams. And his dreams always wake up to a body that can't roll over and can't go back to sleep for all the hurt the dream has brought. He's never able to rise and stretch with the morning sun. He's never able to socialize in the streets. He's never able to step out for a breath of fresh air. He's never able to walk off his frustrations. He's never able to have a change of scenery without inconveniencing a handful of people. He has to rely on others for everything. Every sip of water, every bite of food, every time he has to go to the bathroom, somebody else has to turn him and bathe him and clothe him. Dependency, humiliation, confinement, boredom, loneliness, frustration, shame, despair. Those are just a few of the entries in the thesaurus that defines life on a three-by-six mat. But for all the hard words, this man has one positive word that gives his life just a syllable of meaning. Friends. He has four faithful friends. They've been his best friends since the days they played ball together. And even though those days are long gone, Somehow, some way, they've stayed friends. They're his best friends in the whole world, and he would do anything for them if he could do anything. And now these four friends have heard some incredible news that bring them to his mat. They have news of a miracle worker. Ever since Jesus cast out a demon from a man in the synagogue, the news is, crested out from Capernaum in waves. It crashed into the shore cities on the Sea of Galilee, and now it's hitting the cities farther inland. It's even washing up as far south as Jerusalem. And when a second story went out about the healing of a leper, it crashed into the villages like a tidal wave. The crowds swelled. People flooded into Capernaum from everywhere. They came to see the carpenter-turned-teacher-turned-miracle-worker... Uh, this phenomenon they call the Nazarene. They're a catch-all collection of seekers, spectators, speculators, and spies. Some came with a hopeful eye, wanting to be healed. Others came with a curious eye, wanting to be convinced. Others came with a jaundiced eye, wanting to find out who is rocking the religious boat and to stop him from making any more waves. But this man listens to his friends and as he listens he remains silent he couldn't go he couldn't walk so they did what friends do they picked up his bed with him on it and they headed out to see jesus because their friend had an immediate need an immediate need verses one through four that should be the first blank there in your outline The place where Jesus is speaking today is packed. The latecomers are wedged into the entrance, standing on tiptoes and cupping their ears to catch a few of this teacher's words. And the last one to arrive is the paralytic, carried by his four faithful friends, each one shouldering a corner of the mat. But the wall of people is impenetrable. And every time they try to get through, they're hushed and waved away by the impatient crowd straining to hear. Not to be denied, the determined friends back away and brainstorm another approach, the stairs. What about the outside stairs to the roof? And their enthusiasm mounts with every step they climb. By the time they reach the top, their hearts are pounding in their throats. And the man on the mat is just looking at him, trying to figure out what's going on. And the only thing he hears is them saying, man, you are heavy. (laughs) And laying him down, the friends survey the flat roof to try and pinpoint where Jesus is standing. And then with adrenaline pumping, they start pulling up clay tiles and tossing them aside. And they burrow through dried clay and mud laced with sturdy branches, and they're making a mess. The falling debris creates this billowy cloud of dust beneath them, and the crowds push back, coughing and complaining while they cover their eyes and mouths with their hands and arms. And their eyes all look up, and the first thing they see is a tangle of fingers clawing their way in to widen the hole. They see a shaft of sunlight and a pair of eyes searching for Jesus. There he is. And four pairs of hands widening the hole. And finally, they see the bottom of a bed mat, like those used by sick people. You know, like the one that paralyzed guy uses. And they watched as that paralyzed guy comes down on the mat. Several men stretched forward to catch the mat and help lower it to the floor, easing the strain on the four guys hanging over the edge of the hole. Jesus saw the paralyzed man. Everyone saw the paralyzed man. The immediate need was obvious, but only Jesus saw the deeper need. Only Jesus saw the deeper need. Verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Jesus' eyes are transfixed on the forehead circling the hole in the ceiling. The text says he saw their faith. Their faith. The faith of the friends. It's on the wings of their faith that mercy from heaven descends. There's no record that they said anything. So it wasn't what Jesus heard that captured his heart, it's what he saw. And just what did he see? He saw four sweaty guys willing to put a shoulder to their faith. Eight scraped hands willing to burrow through any obstacle. Four dirty faces hungering for a healing, wide-eyed with anticipation, like street children pressing their noses against a bakery window, famished for a taste of heaven. These guys dared what no adult with any sense of responsibility would have done. They tore up somebody's roof, interrupted somebody else while he was speaking, inconvenienced all the rest of the people there who were listening, making them cough, getting them dirty at the same time. It's like a bunch of little kids, mere children. But the guy they came to see is the same guy who said, Luke 18, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And he didn't look at these guys as an interruption. He saw their faith. He also said, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus looks up and he sees four dirty, sweaty faces. And his eyes glimmer with thank you. The friends want him to heal their friend, the paralytic. But Jesus doesn't settle for a simple healing of the body. He wants to heal the soul. He leapfrogs the physical and deals with the spiritual. To heal the body is temporary. To heal the soul is eternal. The friend's request is valid, but timid. The crowd's expectations are high, but not high enough. They expect him to treat the physical. That is what they see. He chooses to treat the spiritual, for that is what he sees. They want Jesus to give this man a new body so he can walk. Jesus wants to give the man grace so he can live. And so he looks down at this wrung out dishrag of a man who now lies plopped at his feet. And he sees that the paralysis is deeper than it appears. Because within that emaciated body lies a crippled soul, paralyzed from sin, shrunken from shame. And the man looks up at Jesus, and I imagine he's like squinting and shielding his eyes from the sun, shining through that stupid hole. But Jesus moves around, he moves to the man, blocks the sun, eclipses the light. And the face of God smiles at this guy. And a sweet piece of manna from heaven falls to the man on the mat. Now everyone is expecting to hear, you are healed. Instead, the words they hear are, son, your sins are forgiven. What did the paralytic want from Jesus? Jesus. Well, everybody knows. You know, I know, everybody knows. It doesn't seem that Jesus knows. Jesus walks over to him, and instead of saying, Rise up, be healed, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if this guy was from Northern Virginia, he would have said something like, Well, um, thanks. But everybody in the whole world, except for you, Jesus, because people from Northern Virginia are sarcastic, seems to realize that's not what I want. I'm paralyzed. I have a more immediate need. And Jesus just smiles and says, no, you don't. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. It's amazing, these men, there's no reference to guilt or sin or forgiveness. But Jesus makes that reference. Jesus is saying to him and to us, you think you know the main problem of your life, and you don't. Jesus is saying, Look, I know you have problems. I know you're suffering, and I'm going to get to that. I know you've been the victim of terrible things that weren't your fault, and I'm going to get to that too. But you need to realize that the main problem in your life is never your suffering, it's your sin. But thankfully, Jesus is aggressive with grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you if you give him even the slightest of openings. In fact, he actually creates his own openings. Faith is a gift. This man wasn't trying to believe. This man isn't trying to find forgiveness. He's not trying to find grace. But Jesus comes after him. And he knows what he's thinking, and he knows his motivation, and he knows his heart. And so he says, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" I wonder, how long has he waited to hear those words? How many tears has he cried to that ceiling to look down on him, pleading for an answer to the enigma of his life? And he hears in Jesus' words, and he sees in Jesus' smile, as if to say, my child, be of good cheer. God is not angry with you. And with quivering lips, the paralytic smiles back. He fights back the tears, but it's no use. He squeezes his eyes shut, and years of pent-up pain spill from his eyes to stream down the side of his face. Because sometimes God is so touched by what he sees that he gives us what we need and not simply what we want. But the tender mercies stroking the face of the paralytic are received as a slap in the face of the religious leaders. What they don't realize, but that Jesus does, is that they have the greater need. They have the greater need, starting at verse 6. See, while heaven's rejoicing, the religious leaders are too busy making mental notes to join in the dance. They reason to themselves, Jesus claims the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus claims to be God. Precisely. That's the point. Their reasoning is correct. It brought them to the right conclusion, but it didn't bring them to Christ. What does it mean to be healed by Jesus? I mean completely healed by Jesus. Start with verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, they're totally right. you know why they're totally right? Do you know what Jesus is claiming? Let's pretend for a moment that Dave, Dave, and Frank walk into a room. Totally random names. I'm just making this up. Then Dave the Younger punches Frank smack in the mouth, blood everywhere. And Dave the Older goes up to Dave the Younger and says, Dave the Younger, I forgive you for punching Frank in the mouth. It's all right. It's all over. What's Frank going to say? Hey, old man, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. He didn't wrong you, he wronged me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. Common sense, right? Now you know what Jesus is claiming when he looks at a man and says, your sins are forgiven. I forgive them, all of them. He's saying, all your sins have been against me. Every sinful thing you've ever done has been against me. The only person who could possibly say to another person that everything you've ever done wrong. sinful has been done against me would be your creator, the person who made you, the one who said I made you for a purpose. And when you violate that purpose, you're violating what I made you for. Only your creator, your Lord, can say that. And Jesus Christ, by forgiving the man, is claiming to be God Almighty. And they knew it. The religious leaders realize right away this man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker he's claiming to be the lord of the universe and how does jesus respond this is what's so interesting it says verse 8 and immediately jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them why do you question these things in your hearts Has anybody ever told you what you were thinking, and they were right? I mean, if that hole in the roof teaches us anything, it's that faith is what brings a person to Jesus, not mere intellectual reasoning. Curiosity crowds the classroom, but it's faith that dug a hole through the roof to bring the paralytic to the feet of Jesus. And now Jesus is reading his critics' minds as if to offer further proof that he is who he says he is. And so now he's looking at the critics... Starting again, verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. On the one hand, what Jesus does is, in a sense, the answer to the question. Of course, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but to prove to you that I'm the Lord of heaven and earth, I say take up your mat and walk. Now we have to listen and look carefully. Because in this question, the verb say is a synonym with do. When Jesus says, take up your bed and walk, he's carrying out that healing. He's making it happen. The word carries out the healing. Therefore, when he says, your sins are forgiven, he also has to carry that out. And I think he's saying, friends, it's infinitely, infinitely, infinitely harder to carry out the forgiveness of sins. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord the king any miracle worker can say take up your bed and walk but only the Savior of the world can say your sins are forgiven in other words he's pointing to the cross when he says it's going to be so much harder to forgive your sins than to heal your body many commentators say that it's at this spot in the beginning of chapter 2 that the shadow of the cross falls across the path of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knows if he heals this man and shows he's not just a miracle worker who can heal the body, but he's also the savior of the world uh, who can heal the soul, he knows that if he heals this man, they're going to kill him. He knows if he heals this man, he's taken the first step down that inevitable path to his own death. So he looks around and he sees half the people want to kill him, the other half of the people want to use him, and he forgives the paralytic. The great irony here is by doing the healing and taking the first step down the road to his own death, he's carrying out our forgiveness. Jesus knows the only way he's going to make the legs of that man mobile is if his own legs are nailed immobile to the cross. They go together. They have to go together. The only way he's going to make that man dance is if he dies. And, you know, he sees them, all those people there. He sees them at their worst. He sees us at our worst. He sees those who are trying to kill him, and he sees those who are trying to use him. And he loves us. Two needs, body and soul. Two sayings, your sins are forgiven, and rise, take up your bed and walk. Both are relatively easy to say, and both are relatively impossible to do. Unless, of course, you're God. In that case, one is as easy as the other, which explains Jesus' lack of anxiety about this. But so the religious leaders won't write him off as just another faith healer, Jesus does what no mere mortal would be presumptuous enough to do. He forgives this man his sins against God, and then he puts the final exclamation point on the debate. Looks again to the man on the mat and says, "I say to you, pick up your be- rise, pick up your bed, and go home." And even with the paralysis healed, the atrophied muscles would have made the man wobble like a toddler. But the paralytic receives grace upon grace. Not only is he given forgiveness and healing, he's given back his strength. Getting up, he heaves his mat over his shoulder and praises God all the way out the door. And the crowd that wouldn't move out of the way to let him in steps aside to let him out. And as he walks by, you hear the crowd murmur, we never saw anything like this. It's a bright, shining moment for the kingdom of God. It's an incredible moment for the people in that room, for through the hole, that hole in the roof came the glory of a far kingdom reflecting off the face of its king. And outside, dancing in the street to the praise of that king are five best friends who now have the joy of heaven streaming down their face. And they're whooping and hollering and carrying on just like little kids. The story isn't over because the stories of Jesus aren't just good stories and they're not just happy ending miracles or merely parables in action these stories are written for us that we might know and believe that these stories are our stories the world's full of paralytics today you probably know people who are a lot like paralytics They can walk all right, they just don't want to. Some people are paralyzed by fear. They can't do anything because they just don't care anymore. They've given up. Nothing good is going to happen to them. Nobody nice is going to show up in their life. There's nowhere fun for them to go. They have no friends, and so they've quit. They go to work, they pay their bills, they do their stuff, but they're alone and tired and numb and unfeeling. And their tombstone will read, died at 31, buried at 81. Paralytics. I'm sorry, they were paralyzed by apathy. Because the next one is paralyzed by fear. Fear of the past. They tried to build a relationship, but then they got burned. And they're not going to make that mistake again. Maybe it's fear of the future. How are they going to pay for the house and their aging parents and their kids' college and their own retirement? They have no idea, and it scares the life out of them. A lot of people fear the present. He got laid off. I could, too. She got divorced. I could, too. He got in a bad accident. I could, too. She got left back. I could, too. And so they work harder and strive harder and excel more out of fear. Paralytics. Many are paralyzed by shame. If you only knew what I've done, could never make up for it. I could never earn your respect. I've been addicted to drugs. I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't stop. I've been addicted to pleasure. It's too easy today, what with the internet and all. I've been addicted to control. I'm in charge of everything, everyone, everywhere, and I hurt people, but I don't know how to stop. If you only knew what I've done, I could never make up for it. I could never earn your respect. Paralytics. And they all need Jesus. There are other paralytics among us, very close to us, because once again, as Pogo said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Do you understand that spiritually? You're a paralytic. You can't be good enough. You can't save yourself. You can't save anybody else either. It's not up to you because you're weak, you're helpless, you're a paralytic, you're a sinner. But the good news is, Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very heart of the gospel is the supreme truth that God accepts us with no conditions whatsoever when we put our trust in the atoning sacrifice of His incarnate Son. Although we're helplessly weak and sinful, God in His grace forgives us completely. It's by His infinite grace that we're saved, not by moral character, works of righteousness, commandment-keeping, or even hard-to-believe going to church. When we do nothing but accept God's total pardon, we receive the guarantee of eternal life. Titus 3, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's Good news. That's the gospel. And in the story of the paralytic, we just get to see it in action. The look of Christ and the power of his word given to the paralytic is a parable of the incarnation and of the cross. Jesus took on flesh, became sin for us and gave up his strength. 2 Corinthians 5:21. You've heard this Before, For our sake, he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus looked at us when we were utterly helpless. He forgave us and healed us. And as we see what Jesus did for this paralytic lying immobile in the dust, his radiant smile and gentle words washing over a man who can't do anything for himself, we see what he did for us. That's the lesson of the paralytic. We just need a mat. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You get his strength. He took your paralysis. Ephesians 2 reminds us, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Who among us would have ever thought to ask God for what he really gives? Which one of us would have dared say, God, would you please hang yourself on a tool of torture as a substitute for every sin, every mistake, and every stupid thing I've ever done? And then have the audacity to ask, and after you forgive me, could you prepare a place for me in your house to live forever? And if that's not enough, would you please come live within me and protect me and guide me and bless me with more than I could ever deserve? Are we aware of our sinfulness and separation from God, acknowledging that we're sinners who have nothing in ourselves to commend us to God. We must lay down before the Lord in humility and reverence, submitting to him as our only hope, telling him that he doesn't save us, we're lost, and asking him to heal us of that sin that lives way down deep inside Are we only asking for the small stuff? You know, we only ask for little things like a long life and a healthy body and good jobs. Not bad from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's flying a kite when he offers us wings. Jesus asked the doubters, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, how would you answer that question? Which is easier for Jesus, to forgive a soul or to heal a body? Asked the high schoolers this morning, which caused Jesus less pain, providing this man with healing or providing this man with heaven? To heal the man's body took a simple command. To forgive the man's sins took Jesus' blood. The first was done in a house of friends, the second on a hill with thieves. One took his words, the other took his body. One took a moment, the other took his life, which was easier. So strong was his love for this motley crew of faith that he went way beyond their appeal and went straight to the cross. Jesus already knows the cost of grace. He already knows the price of forgiveness, but he offers it anyway. By the way, that hasn't changed. What happened then can happen now. The face that smiled at a paralytic then can smile at a paralytic now. The word that heals body and soul then can heal body and soul now. Because as Jesus is about to tell them, just a few more verses in this chapter, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You have to understand, Mark wants us to see that the Jesus story is not only about him, but also about us. This text shows us how God reveals his power in order to call people who live with paralysis, people who think they're not good enough to follow Christ. God takes people who are outsiders and who can't get in on their own and makes them insiders, people who are involved in a relationship with the God of the universe people who are called to live a life that looks to God because he has poured out his grace on those of us who realize that without Christ we really are paralytics who are utterly helpless to do anything at all to deserve his grace that's the essence of grace getting what you don't deserve and Mark tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, and will return to establish its presence over all creation. And the church must show what that grace looks like, starting by bringing that grace to those who are paralyzed and who need a few faithful friends who will bear their burden and bring them to Christ, who is, after all, the King. And all those willing to pick up a mat said, Amen. Take a moment to pray, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Lord Jesus, we don't know how bad off we really are. We're paralyzed people. Through apathy, fear, and shame, we're bound to mats of our own making. Father, we thank you for giving us a healer, a real healer, a healer who can heal our immediate needs, our deepest needs, and our greater needs. We thank you that the healing never comes the way we expect. We always go about thinking this is the main place we hurt, and you always take us to some other place. We thank you that you're the one we can trust, however, because by your wounds we are healed. Our wounds close up because your wounds were opened. You see our hearts, you call our names, you forgive our sins. Help us to come to you as Savior, submit to you as Lord, and follow you as King. Give us strength to follow you for the rest of our days. And so work in each of us this year as we live with Mark, a follower of Jesus, as we hear what he hears, given to him by eyewitnesses of Christ. Thank you for this extraordinary story. Thank you for the glimpses we get of Jesus and all his wisdom, power, and compassion. Give us, we pray, the faith to believe that we can do what Jesus asks us to do. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and in your word and in this gospel to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.